of Sassnacks, it's Chelsea back for another episode of the Sassnack Files. This week, I am discussing the season seven premiere, A Life Well Lost. But before we get to that, I want to take a moment to remind you that you can find the Sassnack Files on all sorts of listening platforms, including iTunes, CastBox, Spotify, Google Podcasts, Amazon Music, iHeartRadio, and many more. Also, if you have not had a chance yet, make sure you head over to follow the Sassnack Files on Facebook and Instagram to make sure you are up to date on all of the latest and greatest news concerning Outlander seasons seven and eight, as well as anything Diana Gabaldon cooks up. Also, if you want a little bit of extra something something during Droughtlander, make sure to head over and become a patron on Patreon. I've got all kinds of Outlander-related content there, including past show notes that I'm releasing one week at a time, as well as new blog posts about relevant things that we are seeing and reading in recent books of the Outlander series and seeing in recent shows. So if you want more Outlander content, feel free to head on over to Patreon and sign up for as little as $5 a month. And with all of that out of the way, let's get into my analysis of 701, A Life Well Lost. Welcome back. It has been a hot flipping minute, y'all, since I have chatted about some Outlander with you guys, and I am ready to get into it. We're talking 701 today. Unfortunately, that means it's Droughtlander, but that doesn't mean we have to give up talking about Outlander. So you know what? Let's just get into it. 701, I think, was a very natural continuation of season six. It picks up with Claire's rescue, closes a lot of loops, or so we think, and really deals with the question of Tom Christie, as well as setting up some of the Mackenzie storyline for the remainder of the season and dropping in some other little things. So in some ways, it did feel like a premiere. In other ways... Not so much. I mean, we didn't really get a lot of expository information in this episode, which I'm kind of okay with. On the DL, I'm okay with it because I'm not usually a huge fan of premieres and kind of how slow they are. But I will say, after having seen this entire season, I could have used a bit more slow pace at the beginning of this eight episodes because it just does not slow down It's something that I'm learning to live with, okay? (laughs) I'm coping with it, but uh, not necessarily my cup of tea 100% of the time. Today, we're going to talk about the premiere. The premiere was excellent. I thought that it had a lot of great information, had a lot of great storytelling techniques, and the cast was phenomenal, as always. The writing was kind of spotty in some places, but, you know, can't really complain too much about it. I guess we'll talk about the one storyline that I was kind of half in, half out. Like one foot out the door, one foot in the house. And that was the McKenzie storyline. This isn't going to be a crap fest on the McKenzie's all season long of this podcast, I promise you, because I actually really, really do like the McKenzie story for 90% of this season. I feel like Roger and Brie are extremely well-written this season in comparison to other seasons. We finally are getting to see those characters that the book readers know and love. They have a very natural relationship. They joke with each other. There's just a certain freedom 
in how they come across on screen versus how they've come across in past seasons, if that makes sense. We can point fingers at it and kind of adjust our perspective on it here in a couple of episodes. But for now, talking about 701, I felt like we really did start to see a shift. The storyline wasn't too exciting for them because it was really setting them up for where they go throughout the rest of this season. So I was kind of okay with it. Not only did it set up their storyline, but it also set up a bit of storyline for Jamie and Claire in 703 with the whole Wendigo Donner mess. I liked how we got to see Roger and Bree have some conflict with a mature adult resolution to that conflict instead of the childish behavior that we have seen at points in their relationship early on. How Roger and Bree deal with this sort of problem with their disagreement over Donner is very much showing how strong they are this season as a couple. And they go through a lot of crap this season, so they have to be It's vital that they are a strong couple and have the support of their partner in whatever they're getting ready to get themselves into. I actually really adore Roger and Brie together and Roger and Brie independently this season. I feel like they're shining. For Sophie particularly, I feel like she really stepped up her game this season. So I'm extremely proud of her and her performance over the course of not just this episode, but the whole first part of season seven, in my opinion. Let's address the elephant in the room, the pregnancy. Okay, Brie is literally the least pregnant, pregnant woman I have ever seen in my entire life. Like at this point in Brie's pregnancy, she should be about to pop, if not like a month past due at this point, okay? And she looks like she's sporting a little four-month baby bump. And I get she's wearing a corset and I get that she's wearing skirts, but bro, like if you, did you see how pregnant Marcelli looked after baby number three? She looked like she was nine months pregnant, six months in. And here Brie looks like she's four months pregnant when she should have given birth like a month ago. So I feel like that is my main continuity complaint about this episode. Granted, it resolves itself at the beginning of the next episode, so I don't have to worry about it too much, and I don't have to complain about it. And I feel like in the grand scheme of everything that all the fans complain about, this is probably the most mild complaint that I could have. But yes, I do notice the elephant-sized pregnancy that Brie is having, and uh, yeah, I feel like they made her pregnant too early in season six. And so then they just had to draw it out really long time. Like Marsley could have had four pregnancies in the time Brie was pregnant with Mandy. (laughs) Let's face it. All righty. With that little, I'll get off my soapbox on that for a minute. And we'll talk about the meat and potatoes of Roger and Brie's story in this episode. Roger has gone to minister to some soldiers as part of his ministry schooling. The whole purpose of this is to make sure that he's not just focusing on the academic side of theology, like he is very much aware of how to preach to the masses, get the word of God out there, help his flock. In doing this, he runs into who? Wendigo Donner. The whole Donner situation really throws a wrench in the works because you're talking about a guy who went through the stones or attempted to go through the stones with five people. 
like him and four others. They all got spat out at different times. We know Robert Springer, who came through with Donner, ended up a hundred years prior to when Donner got spit out, or at least 75. So I feel like this story of them not all making it through the stones with everything being hunky-dory adds some credence to the very real danger of time travel. That's something that's not super communicated in the show. I will say the dangers of time travel that like you could literally get stuck in the stones or you could die trying to go through the stones or once you get where you're going. People have had major health problems because of the stones. It's really just not as easy as it's it appears. And so I feel like by Donner telling his story of what happened to them and that he doesn't know what happened to the four other people that he traveled with, that raises some very valid concerns about time travel in general. But the other side to that, the other side of Donner is that at the end of season five, he was part of the group of men that abducted Claire. Now you've got Bree and Roger, who both have things that happened to them in the past informing their present argument, and they're on flip sides of the coin. So Roger is a very compassionate person. I feel like he's a bleeding heart to a fault sometimes, just like Claire. <laughs> like, I definitely think that they have that in common. But Roger remembers what it was like being on Stephen Bonnet's ship and not being able to stop him from tossing that girl with the smallpox overboard and watching her mother scream and then jump in the sea after her. He was outnumbered and there was no way that he could have stopped what was about to happen without getting killed himself. So Roger knows what that's like. Roger can identify with Donner. Likewise, Brianna in season four also had to deal with a similar situation to what Claire had to. There were people that knew what was happening to her when she was being raped and they sat by and did nothing. And Donner was one of those people that knew what was happening and sat by and did nothing and let this terrible thing happen to her mother. So how could she not have some resentment towards the man that just let this happen? So I think that the key to these two perspectives is that they hear each other, Roger and Brie, and they contemplate what the other person is saying, and they kind of come to this middle ground by the end of their side of this story this episode, which I thought was a really beautiful sentiment. Like, we really need to see Roger and Brie on the same plane, very reciprocal of each other's feelings and thoughts and emotions in their marriage because they need to be strong moving forward into episode two and everything that happens there. Moving on from Roger and Brie, I want to talk a little bit about Claire's story. I was honestly surprised that they kept so much of the jail material from the book. When you look at the original formatting of season six being 12 episodes and season seven being 12 episodes, this episode was originally supposed to be written by Diana Gabaldon in season six. It wasn't originally supposed to be the season seven premiere. For those of you that have come to Outlander recently during the Droughtlander between season six and season seven. So Diana Gabaldon wrote the initial script for this episode when it was part of season six. And they did keep large chunks 
of her episode and then kind of wrote around it and made it more formatted for a season premiere, which is what Luke Skelhaus did, who is the writer for this episode. Overall, this episode sets the tone well for how faithful to the books this season is as an adaptation. It's very close. There are a lot of scenes that are taken verbatim out of the books. Things are streamlined for sure. Like somebody said, I feel like season seven is the greatest hits of A Breath of Snow and Ashes and Echo. (laughs) And I feel that in my bones so much. We get a lot of book content, but the context isn't there for a lot of it. Like we know what it was originally intended to be. And so we can appreciate it as book readers. And I don't feel like show watchers really miss that much. Like I live with my mother who is a show watcher. I talk to my brother and sister-in-law frequently. We debrief after every episode and they love this season so far. So I don't feel like it's a detriment to the show watchers, but again, like it's so fast paced and it's so streamlined that you really can't help but feel like, wait, what? I feel like we're missing something. And yeah, we're missing a lot because they streamlined it so much. We probably have two thirds of Echo and I would say the back quarter of A Breath of Snow and Ashes all in the first eight episodes of season seven for those of you that are just show watchers. So that just shows the magnitude of the amount of content they're trying to cover in this season. It's really just flabbergasting, if I'm being honest. With all of that being said, I was shocked that they included as much jail material as they did. I really expected for them to kind of just have the whole gallows scene and then have one of the the crown's men ride up the governor's men and just say hey we need her hold the executions and take her away i didn't expect to have the jail sequence at all now granted i feel like it gave an opportunity for a lot of creativity i mean they built this set that was literally used for like three scenes And it's this old slaughterhouse, and it's really cool how they did it. If you look at the the behind-the-scenes pictures of it, it's kind of sad that they spent so much time working on it, and then they just tore it down after this episode, never to be used again. It blows my mind the amount of effort that they put into a set they're only going to use a couple of times. I mean, I get putting the effort into the big house, because that's something that took seasons worth of scenes. Nevertheless, I mean, I'm glad they do it because it gives Outlander such an authentic quality to it. Like, it's not your average soap opera that operates off of the same sets for years and decades. Nonetheless, we got Sadie, we got Mrs. Tolliver, and a whole host of other ladies. I felt like more so than anything, The jail scenes were there to communicate the atmosphere of the American colonies at this time. It wasn't necessarily to build the plot at all. It was to set the scene because we need to understand that the justice system has completely broken down. It is very much rebels versus loyalists at this time. And the way that this script was written and the dialogue that was in here, not just in the jail scenes, but with Claire and the Martins. I really started to develop a sympathy towards the loyalists and how they're literally being run out of their homes at this point. And they're being threatened with death just simply for what they believe. And granted, if the crown caught the rebels, the same could be said of them. So it was really just a tough situation all around. But you have to 
have some sympathy for the situation that all of these people are in. Even the criminals, Sadie, has been in jail for a month. There hasn't been a trial held for two months. I mean, it kind of works out because, as Sadie says to Claire, if they can't try you, they can't convict you, they can't hang you. Claire was like, yeah, but I don't really want to languish in jail for however many years until the revolution is over, (laughs) which you can't really blame the girl for either. But it kind of just goes to show the environment, the political environment, that all the courts are shut down, the sheriffs are running for cover, and everything's just kind of in limbo at this point. And it does leave some wiggle room to creatively get our characters where they need to go in a timely fashion. Governor Martin has declared martial law. He's the governor of the colony. He can do whatever the heck he wants. And he wants Claire to come to his ship to tend to his pregnant wife who's ill. So away she goes. And this all happens within the span of like 24 hours. The impression that I'm getting is that Tom leaves the jail because the guards won't let him stand by the door overnight, goes to the to the inn, and then comes back the next morning, and Claire is already gone. So she was not in jail for very long, you know? Lucky duck. So once Claire gets to the ship, she deals with the Martins, Governor Josiah Martin and his wife. The Martins have a particularly tragic story. So when Claire gets on the ship... This is where I really start to sympathize with the Martins. Mrs. Martin, she's just really appalled by the fact that they managed to find her a physician or a midwife, but that they pulled her from the local jail. Although I'm not really sure where she thought they were going to find a doctor or a midwife when she says herself that there's just nothing in within three counties or whatever she says. It really kind of struck home for me when she says, imagine a royal governor forced to flee from his home, chased by mobs of his own citizens. And she also says, like, we're not that desperate yet, are we? Plucked from a jail. Like, she's just so horrified by what's happening that she just can't really wrap her mind around it. I don't think any of the loyalists can wrap their head around what's happening. And, you know, when I put myself in the shoes of these people in the American colonies at the time of the American Revolution... I'm not sure I would have been able to wrap my head around it either. People talk a big game, but how many people would actually be able to stand up against the crown and say, you know what? No, I'm going to fight for what I believe in. Like, I'm pretty sure I would have been a loyalist. I'm going to just put that out there. Like, I don't know that I would have had the balls to be a rebel. So there's that. But... I don't think that any of the people that were higher up in the American colonies, any of the governors or leaders of the military thought that the rebels had a chance in hell of winning this revolution. And to see that they were causing so much disturbance, hunting down sheriffs and hanging them, firing businesses and just causing absolute chaos and destruction for all intents and purposes. Like it was a scary time to be alive. And when When you look at Josiah Martin, who was the governor of the colony of North Carolina, he's slowly but surely losing control of his domain. And I love how they included whenever he's talking to whatever sailor he's got that kind of does his errands for him. He says, the Redcoats will hang me before the goddamn rebels do if he loses North Carolina. If he doesn't get Fort Johnston back, if he doesn't make some sort of progress, 
his life might as well be counted as lost because they'll never accept that he did everything that he could and eventually he just had to flee. He's like the captain. You go down with the ship, okay? And granted, like his wife and children are with him and he has to make sure that they get to safety. This is all part of the predicament that Governor Martin was in, that a lot of people were in. How do you protect the ones that you love and keep everyone safe but still fight for what you believe in? It's a very complicated situation. I really did love the conversation that the governor and Claire had when he says that Jamie and Claire should be ashamed of their actions. And he said, the only thing more painful than losing my three sons is knowing my daughters will grow up in a world that exists without them, without the men they would have become, men who would have protected them from those who chose violence and bloodshed, chaos and anarchy over law and order, those who would betray their nation and choose war. I found that dialogue so powerful. And Eugene O'Hare, who plays Governor Martin, I think did a great job delivering those lines because it's true. How do you justify putting children through such a terrible time? Like, you know, as adults, and especially in this time in the 18th century, when war was very prevalent, most men had fought in some sort of war or conflict at some time in their lives. Everybody knows what the price of war is. Anyone over the age of 18 or 20 knows what the price of war is and how do you justify that when you, you're trying to raise your children in that world? How do you not have resentment towards the people that would make war against you and violate this peace, supposedly, that's been created, you know? So I love the feeling that was put behind that line. I felt like it was so perfect and so poetically written as well. Like, I really, I loved it. Now, Mrs. Martin, on the other hand, um, she's equally as horrified as her husband, but also I think she identifies with Claire as a woman. And she immediately knows who Claire is. When she finds out that she's a midwife that came from the jail, she's like, oh, my God, you're her. You're the murderess. Uh, you're quite notorious. And there's so much bravado in her words. And I feel like the woman that they cast as Mrs. Martin also did a phenomenal job. She's very hidey tidy You can also see the fear in her eyes, like the tears welling as she's like, promise me you won't hurt my baby. And Claire responds with a line that says something to the effect of, Mrs. Martin, your husband brought me here because I'm a healer and hurting you would be at cross purposes with that, wouldn't it? <laughs> And I love that. It's like, ma'am, I am not going to hurt you. I'm not guilty of the crime that I committed. It's just the very polite English way to say, seriously, lady, I'm not going to murder you and your unborn child or I wouldn't be here. I don't know. I felt like the Martins, their parts were very streamlined compared to how they were in the books. But overall, I felt were very well done. And I feel like the people that were cast for them did a good job as well. Now, the part of this episode and the adaptive choice of this episode that really kind of twisted it a little bit for me was taking Major McDonald from a friend of Jamie and Claire's that's willing to help them out to a backstabbing, weasel, manipulative bastard. 
I don't know that I was okay with that. Granted, Major McDonald in the show is quite different than he is in the books. So whenever you separate the two, I guess I can see how Major McDonald could get from point A to point B. He was very disappointed in Jamie's decision to resign as Indian agent, especially after supposedly making such great progress with the Cherokee. Kind of left Major McDonald high and dry when Jamie's success with the Cherokee had actually given Major McDonald more credibility in the eyes of the governor. So Jamie's decisions have kind of reflected poorly on Major McDonald. And then Major McDonald's also been having the whispers of the Browns in his ears about how awful the Frasers are. So all of that coupled together really makes Major McDonald realize that maybe Jamie and Claire are not the loyal subjects of the crown that they claimed to be. That maybe they are rebels and maybe they do have questionable loyalties. And I can understand how Governor Martin, as a loyal soldier, would want his governor to know that he may be doing business with people that are secretly supporting the rebel cause. So I guess when you look at it like that, you can kind of understand where Major McDonald is coming from. Doesn't mean that I appreciate his manipulative side because literally Claire has done such a good job of making things on a need-to-know basis and then literally within 30 seconds, Major McDonald gets it all out there and Claire is getting the dirtiest look from Governor Martin. Like, really? You bitch. (laughs) So, you know, rooting for Claire as our protagonist, I'm not really sure that I can support Major McDonald's endeavors in making sure that everybody's dirty laundry is out in the world for people to see. I don't know that I agree with that choice, but also I am on Jamie and Claire's side. So it would be kind of weird if I was like, yeah, totally. He made the right decision. You can easily see this pattern building of Jamie and Claire's past decisions snowballing into a problem that is rapidly becoming unsolvable. Jamie tried for so long to maintain his anonymity, to walk the line between loyalist and rebel and not have anybody question his loyalties because he knew at the beginning that he had to be perceived as a loyalist to keep his land and protect his people. But as the revolution comes closer, he has to switch sides, but he has to choose the right moment to switch sides. And that was primarily his story in season six was when do you switch sides and how do you make that call? And what he's coming to understand with stunning rapidity is that every decision that he made is biting him in the ass so hard that he can't even manage to save his own wife. He has put up the pretense of being a loyalist, gotten himself in bed with the governor, and then called Baxi's on it and pissed off the governor, pissed off Major McDonald. And now the only way that Governor Martin is going to be willing to give Claire back to Jamie is if he goes back to North Carolina, musters 200 men and brings them to Major McDonald's command which is just impossible. Jamie didn't even have 200 men under his control when he was calling up the militia for the regulation. And now Governor Martin is literally setting him up for failure, knowing not only that Jamie could never muster that amount of men, even if he was a loyalist, but he just has no intention of giving Claire back because he knows that they are both rebels. It comes to a point where 
Jamie realizes that he's no longer going to be able to do this on his own. Before this episode, every time that Claire needed saving, it was always Jamie that came to her rescue. There was never a time where he wasn't fully capable of saving her. He always had the men to help him and always had the resources to to get done what needed done. This is different on a lot of levels. In this chess game that Jamie and Governor Martin are playing, Jamie's out of moves. He's pointed out to Governor Martin, you've declared martial law. If you wanted to let my wife go, you could let her go. And Governor Martin's like, fat chance I'm not letting your wife go. What else you got? And there really is nothing else that Jamie has in his back pocket. So he goes back to Wilmington, essentially, with his tail between his legs. Salvation comes in the most unlikely form this episode in the form of Tom Christie. Before we talk about Tom Christie and all of that stuff, I do kind of want to talk about a couple of Jamie moments in this episode up to that point. So I thought that the way this episode started out, they obviously hinted at this in a lot of the trailers and teaser trailers and advertisements and stuff like that. I will be the first to admit that I speculated that this was a dream from Claire's perspective and she was going to jolt awake in the jail and everything was going to be hunky-dory. And I feel like that was the expectation of a lot of people. And I will say that I was pleasantly surprised by their creative choice in this episode. I don't think anybody saw it coming that this was actually from Jamie's perspective. But there was so much that was clever about the way they shot this, the way it was choreographed, the way it was written, that I wanted to make sure and talk about it. When Claire is walking up on the gallows and you kind of look at her and she's like so terrified, this gallows is at the exact same spot that Hayes was hanged in the season four premiere. And like Hayes, Claire is scanning the crowd for Jamie, looking for Jamie. She's waiting for Jamie to save her as he has done so many times. All she sees is Brown smiling up at her. And it's a twisted play on Hayes's last wish, which was to lay eyes on a friend smiling up at him. And Jamie was there, but Jamie wasn't there for Claire. She gets pushed off the gallows and it swings and you hear just the rope swinging back and forth in complete darkness. And then you hear Uncle Jamie Uncle Jamie echoing through the darkness and then it flashes to Jamie opening his eyes and you realize that this is literally Jamie's perspective, Jamie's worst nightmare. I thought that was so ingenious because it's not about Claire's fear over dying. It's about Jamie's fear about failing Claire and not being able to to maintain the promises of his wedding vows. And you hear that in this voiceover where he says, I cannot let my darkest fears cripple me. Blood of my blood, bone of my bone. I gave you my spirit till our lives shall be done. And that's why I can, you're alive still. I'd feel it if you were gone. You live, I can it in my bones and I will find you. It's so powerful realizing that this is, This is him, his perspective, his complete and utter terror at losing Claire. It's just not at all what you expect from the opening of this episode. So um, hats off 
to the Outlander creators on that. Like, that's the kind of creativity that I really love and admire whenever they take expectation and they twist it into something different. Because the initial bones are there, but the emotion that you feel when you completely understand what story they're telling. And then, of course, Sam was just phenomenal, as always. It's so hard whenever you have a lot of voiceover, going off on a mild tangent here, but I just watched 1883, which is the Yellowstone origin story. So if you want my thoughts on that, I'll be doing a chat with Chelsea on it on my Patreon. Shameless plug. But there is a ton of voiceover in that show. And it sort of gets annoying, like season one of Outlander annoying. It would be easy enough for Jamie's voice over here because it's not like a short sentence or anything like that. Like it's literally a dialogue that he's having, like a monologue. So it'd be easy to kind of get annoyed, but I feel like Sam does such a good job of his facial features changing. Like, yes, you're hearing his voice speak his internal thoughts, but you're also seeing it written all over his face and the way his eyes widen, his eyelids flicker, his eye twitches, just the smallest thing tells a story and really provides a fantastic companion to the monologue. It's not just like season one where we watch Frank and Claire walk around a field while Claire narrates about her life over the past seven years or whatever. I really enjoyed it, actually, and I thought that Sam did a good job of filling that space with information that a viewer can take in and build a character around, if that makes sense. Something else that I wanted to talk about was when Jamie comes to the jail and is talking to Sadie. He walks in the jail after expressing his complete displeasure at Tom for having let Claire out of his sight. How dare he? (laughs) And he walks into the jail and Ian's like, they couldn't tell me where they took her uncle. And he goes, could not or would not. And then... (laughs) Sadie is like, got any sort of drink, sir? Or maybe a wee bob to pay for some? (laughs) And Jamie just looks at Ian and just kind of goes, mm-hmm, could not or would not. It's the look that he gives Ian. And then he proceeds to interrogate this weasel that Sadie is. You know, by 21st century standards, it it would seem that Sadie did Claire a favor by saying that she was the murderess and Claire was the forger. But then when you find out the absolute asinine truth of it, that being a murderess was less of a crime than being a forger, the governor couldn't pardon a forger, but the governor could pardon a murderess. Like, mind freaking blown on that shit, okay? Like, how is that a thing? How is that ever a thing that murdering somebody was less of a crime than signing somebody's name on a document? (laughs) I just don't understand, guys. But nonetheless, when Jamie learns all of this and Sadie starts trying to, like, play him, he goes from good cop to bad cop, like, with the flip of a switch. It's sort of crazy how mercurial Jamie is in this episode. We see two very different sides to him on multiple occasions. And I feel like this was a really fun episode for Sam to play, and I don't know if I'll ever get the chance to ask him, 
but I'm very curious because I feel like he got to play the warm, loving, affectionate husband, but he also got to play the infamous Red Jamie in this episode as well. And those episodes, I think, where you play two sides of the same character has to be fun on a creative level to play. We saw the first hints of this double-edged sword, so to speak, good cop, bad cop, when he's talking to Sadie. And he is very open and honest, kind of more of a relaxed posture. And he's like, if you truly want to help, you'll tell me where they took her. And then Sadie, she says something about like, well, maybe for a penny more, like we can make it a wee dram. And he steps in and gets within a couple inches of her face and says, you're lucky that guard is watching in this really low, menacing voice. And she like gets scared. But in that moment, not only does Sam have a very frightening look on his face, it's in moments like that where he like gets up in a woman's face. Like, did you just realize how big of a man he is? (laughs) He's huge, not just tall, but like very broad shoulders and just like a big man and not somebody I would want to get on the wrong side of, if you know what I mean. But anyway, he like gets in her face and threatens her. And when he does that, the camera shifts slightly off of its axis. The screen is tilted. When they choose to do this in film, it's used to signal that things are not quite right. Things are off. It kind of tells your brain that the world is off its axis. All is not well. And you really do get this sense of unease watching it tilt. And I almost feel like watching that camera tilt is watching Jamie lose his grip just slightly. He's really starting to lose the line between right and wrong in his desire to get this figured out and get his wife back, you know? Like, it would be so easy for him to snap in that moment. That's the feeling that I get watching that camera come up in angle. Those were the two things that I really wanted to talk about before we get into the Jamie and Tom of it all, because I feel like that is a good chunk of the story that I definitely want to make sure to spend some time on. So Claire writes to Tom when she knows that she's not going to be able to get off the ship. She's literally doing everything she can to convince the governor that he needs to stay right where he's at and not make off for open sea, basically, or for a northern colony. He obviously is not having any of it, but she's doing everything she can. And then finally, she's like, look, I need additional medicines for your wife. Let me go into town to get them. And he's like, fat chance, you're a prisoner. You're not going anywhere. But I can send somebody to go get your stuff for you. So just write down a list. And so Claire ends up writing to Tom with this list of things that she needs procured. Things like oil of porcupine, which what the hell is oil of porcupine used for? I'm guessing it's used probably in a similar vein as like goose grease, you know? Camphor, one other item, and then vermuse. Obviously, a lot of people aren't going to know what that means, but she knows that Tom is going to know what it means. In writing to Tom, she has told him where she's at and that she needs Tom to find Jamie and send him to her. Whenever Tom is reading that letter, like at first he's so thrilled that Claire could come to him with this, you know, that she would trust him to help her. And then he realizes that what she really wants 
is Jamie. And that moment, when you look at Tom's face, like the camera kind of just lingers on Mark Lewis Jones. And it gave him a lot of time to breathe this episode, I found. We really sat with Tom this episode. In quite a few scenes, the camera just kind of lingers on him, which completely understandable because Mark Lewis Jones is a freaking amazing, okay? Grade A actor, top-notch man. I went to Highlander 6 a couple weeks ago and he was one of the guests and he is just phenomenal in every way. They really gave him time to embrace his character and to like show the many shades of Tom Christie, as it were, because I think it shocked a lot of people that Tom just came out and professed his undying love and devotion to Claire this episode. My show-watching family, who had no clue this was going to happen, was like, what is happening right now? It was quite funny to hear their reactions, actually, because they did not see any of this coming. When Jamie is unsuccessful in getting Claire back, Tom realizes that he has to do something. And remember how I was talking about that opening scene with Jamie and how rather than what we thought was the initial intent of that scene before we learned the context around it was Claire's fear of dying. But what it really is, is Jamie's fear of failing Claire. Circling back around to that, when we see this scene between Tom and Jamie, where Tom comes to Jamie and says, basically, look, I've never asked you for anything before, but I've watched men come to you and ask you for favors and you've never failed them. And I need you to do something for me now. I need you to let me do this, to go to Claire and to confess to the murder of my daughter to save her. I need you to let me do this. That takes a lot of guts, not only for Tom, but it makes Jamie swallow a lot of his pride to allow Tom to do this. It takes Jamie acknowledging that he's unable to save Claire on his own and he needs help. I don't think he's ever asked Tom Christie for help with anything before and he wasn't about to start now. Like he says, I swore to Claire on our wedding day, yada, 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 and I don't need your help. I can do this on my own. But then Jamie realizes, no, we can't. He can't do this on his own. But Tom might have a valid argument here and I need to hear him out. And eventually Jamie realizes that this is the best course of action. If this is really what Tom wants to do and Tom really does love Claire like Jamie loves Claire, which I think he knows that he does, that he can't take this from Tom. He has to let him do this. It was a very powerful scene between Jamie and Tom. And after the whole of season six, watching them be adversaries, it was a very unique experience. And I felt like Sam and Mark did a really good job with that scene on the porch of the Red Falcon, where they were talking just as men, as equals, sharing their love of the same woman, which I thought was very interesting without going too much into spoilers for show only people. There were a couple of things in this episode that I will try to remember to talk about when we get to the back half of season seven that I feel like we're going to see some echoes between 701 and a few episodes in part B of season seven. Man, I felt like this scene between Sam and Mark where Jamie was talking to Tom about what he would say at his funeral. Oh, man. Like, it was so powerful. So I want to read it just so we can, like, fully appreciate this dialogue. Tom says, That blackened day, Mistress Fraser told us 
what she would have said about Malva at her funeral. I won't have a eulogy, and I don't know what kind of burial awaits me, but I do wonder what you might have said about me. After some hesitation, Jamie says, I would say that Thomas Christie was an honorable Scot, a leader of men in his own way, though he didn't ken quite where to lead them. Stubborn as a damn mule, but despite our differences, a man I respected and whose respect I hope I had in return. It's just such a wonderful way to leave these two characters who have been at odds for so many episodes and so many years, it seems. They can finally share their love over this woman and come to even footing as men. Right before that, when Jamie decides to let Tom do this, the bell tolls in the background. And I just get chills every time I hear that because remember in season six when Alan and Tom and Roger were putting the bell up in the belfry at the church on the ridge, Tom quotes that poem, Say not for whom the bell tolls, it tolls for thee. That was a major theme throughout the season six trailer as well. So who does the bell toll for? It tolls for Tom in this episode. Ugh, I get chills thinking about it. It was a very good creative moment personally for me. So I really liked that parallel, that throwback, as it were, to the previous season where this story started. So then we get the final scene between Claire and Tom, which, again, is a very powerful scene. I feel like Mark Lewis Jones just knocked it out of the frigging park this episode, to be honest. He had so many amazing scenes, and he was awesome with Katrina. The Tom and Claire scene on the ship where Tom confesses to Malva's murder. We got a lot of answers that episode or what we think are answers at that point. And I think Tom has thought long and hard about how he was going to make this confession believable. And despite his best efforts, Claire and Jamie still don't quite believe him, right? They're they're thinking, no, Tom, you didn't do this. And Nothing that you're going to say is going to make me think that you did this. The whole time that Tom is talking, I feel like Claire sees the kernels of truth in what he's saying, but you can also see where she's like, you're full of shit, because she just rolls her eyes or sighs or whatever. And I think part of her rolling her eyes is when he's talking about Malva being a witch, just like her mother And Claire's like, ugh, superstitious, blah, blah, blah. But, you know, it's really a tragic story for Tom. He joined up with the Stewart cause. He asked his brother to look after his wife and son, Alan. And, oh boy, he did. Ended up sleeping with Tom's wife. Tom's wife got pregnant with Malva. So Malva is actually his niece, not his daughter. So we got that confirmed for us. That's something that Jamie and Claire kind of thought might be a thing. If you remember way back to like the second episode of season six, where Claire is talking to Jamie about how old Malva is and that that doesn't quite jive with when Tom was in prison and when he was an indentured servant. So we learned the full story on that. Obviously, we knew that Alan and Malva's mother was hanged as a witch, but she was also hanged for the murder of Tom's brother, Edgar. Tom sent for Alan and Malva because they no longer had parents. Their mother was dead. Their uncle was, well, uncle slash father was dead. And so I really do feel like Tom felt like he needed to do right by these children to give it the old college try, even though he himself was a bit of a mess after what happened. He he wanted to try to protect these children and do right 
right by them. Um, but Malva, as he put it, she just had something about her that was too much like her mother, that slyness and kind of desire to wheedle men, I guess. A bit like a siren, and so I'm fully of the belief that it's going to come out eventually in the series that Malva was kind of like Galus in that respect. Very alluring, able to basically call men into their deaths, as it were. I think that that's a special genetic quality that some women have, that that witch side of them, so to speak. That's kind of my thought. But honestly, Tom uses that story. Well, I think he fully believes it, they're witches. Like, he uses that to build his case on why he would have murdered Malva. And Claire's not buying that, that he would kill Malva and her unborn child. She's just not. She knows that Tom is a better man than that. Even though Tom is telling her, you know, she tried to kill us. You told her about the germs and I caught her with the bones from the sin eater and she made a broth and tried to poison us and yada yada. I mean, there's a lot of stuff that comes out in Tom's confession. She made the love charm, Claire realizes. And Tom says she yearned for wealth and position. And then Claire looks at him and says, or things that she viewed as freedom. And I think that that is more likely, to be honest, that she knew that if she married Jamie, Jamie would obviously be heartbroken by the loss of Claire. But she also knew that Jamie treated Claire as an equal with tender love and care and that Malva would probably want for nothing. And what she underestimated was Jamie's willingness to accept this child as his. Like, she thought she could back him into a corner and that would be that. I don't know that Jamie would have married Malva if Claire had died. I mean, I don't know that he wouldn't have, but I, I think that was a misled action on her part. At the very end of this whole thing, Tom has a couple of really good lines. He says, I have waited all my life in search of no, in hope of a thing I could not name, but I knew must exist. I was convinced it was God I sought, but the love of God alone could not sustain me. No, now I know that I, I love you. And Claire, she does, she just looks away. She can't believe what she's hearing. Like she was really hoping he wasn't going to say it because she can't say it back, you know? And that's got to be such an awkward position to be in. But then he keeps going and uh, he says, I have yearned always for love given and returned. I've spent my life in the attempt to give my love to those who are not worthy of it. Allow me this, to give my life for the sake of one who is. And I think not only is Tom talking about his wife, but also his children. Look at what his children became. I mean, he loved them. He would do anything for them. He's their father. But at the end of the day, like they ended up being some pretty shitty individuals. He knows that Claire is a good person. He loves her for it. And he knows that if anybody is worth dying for, it's her. It's kind of sad, really, like tragic to think about. But also like in a way thinking that Tom really found his purpose in life, if that makes sense. And so that's why I really liked that line at the end where Claire says, you can't do this. Like your life has value. And he said, I know that if I did not, then this would not matter. His actions wouldn't matter if his life didn't have meaning. His life has value because he can give it 
in the stead of someone else so that they can keep living. It's just kind of like an epiphany moment for him, I feel like. Like, he's finally found his purpose in life, if that makes sense. Which is really sad that, like, his purpose in life, he feels, is to give up his life for someone else. That sort of self-sacrificing nature is just something that you do not expect from Tom Christie at all. And I think, like, Claire knows that Tom didn't do it and she tells him she knows he didn't do it, but he's like, it's true. I will swear on the Holy Scriptures. And she just kind of, like, knows at that point that it's pretty much worthless to argue against him because this uber-religious man, if he is willing to swear on the Bible that it's true, then, like, he's literally willing to forsake everything that he's believed in up till this point, I feel like, which is just kind of crazy to think about. What I wanted to wrap with was kind of the through line of this episode. It starts out with the title card, which by itself was kind of like, okay, where are they going with this? It's Jamie walking out of a dark alleyway into the light of the square, walking towards the inn and then kind of disappearing as it fades out. And you're like, okay, what the heck is happening? And then All through this episode, little crumbs keep getting dropped. So we see Jamie outside the brothel and he looks towards the inn and he just kind of gets this look on his face. Like he looks at this horse and he has this look of recognition on his face. But then he ends up going into the brothel. We get a few more scenes. He comes out of the brothel, notices that the horse is gone and Tom shows up. And then we go through the rest of the episode. And then Jamie and Claire are laying in bed that night after Claire comes home safe. They have this conversation. Claire wants to make sure that Jamie didn't coerce Tom into making the decisions that he made. They have this talk about, like, she's not sure if she can live with him sacrificing himself for her. And then Jamie says, if he feels as I do, then you did him no wrong, Sassanac. That he would count his life well lost if it was to protect her. Claire falls asleep and Jamie's just laying there on the bed like waiting for her to fall asleep. And he looks over so she's asleep and he slides out of bed. And you're like, where the hell is this going? Like I was like, as I was watching this the first time, I clicked on it. I was like, how much longer does this have? Like, oh, two minutes. Okay, Jesus. So I'm just waiting and I'm like, oh shit. Oh shit. Brown walking into his room. Brown putting his gun on the bedside table, walking around, and then it's Jamie in the corner. And you're like, ooh, this is not going to be good or going to be good, depending on how you view the world. I thought the through line from the title card, all these little breadcrumbs to the final scene was just fantastic because it really pulls the whole episode together and gives us some really good finality on the whole Brown situation. And for those of you that were wondering about this sort of cliffhanger, did he, didn't he situation, Jamie did in fact kill Richard Brown. That has been said by showrunners and Diana Gabaldon alike, has been confirmed because they wanted that finality. In the books, Jamie does not kill Richard Brown and everything is just like they kind of make their peace with it. But Richard Brown wasn't near the villain in the books that he was in the show. So I can see how they wanted that closure for the viewers moving forward. There's some really great dialogue from Jamie and some really great creative moments in this scene. So I wanted to chat about it just a little bit. When we first see Jamie, he's 
half hidden in shadow and half illuminated by firelight, which really gives it this Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde feel for me. Like there's two sides to him. I mean, literally, we just saw him in this really tender moment with Claire where he's consoling her. And then literally in the next scene, we see him murdering somebody. It was really just this juxtaposition of the two sides of Jamie. You've got Jamie Fraser, Claire's husband, and you've got Red Jamie, Highland Warrior. Richard says, you wouldn't kill me. You're a good man, a moral man. And Jamie has this line, which is fantastic, so I'll make sure to read it to you. Jamie says, I'm also a violent man. Any goodness that prevails in me is because of my wife. You tried to take her from me. That really does show like all the positive moments the Jamie we love moments in this episode are centered around Claire. And when she's not there, you see the camera coming off its axis. You see the twitch in his eye, the darkness in his expression, and these violent tendencies with Sadie, with Richard. Even the way that he puts his fists on the table and leans in when he's talking to the governor, it's just this barely restrained violence just bubbling under the surface with Jamie, which kind of seems to go away when he's in the presence of Claire. Or at least he can hide it better. Maybe that's the case. But when this scene ends, I honestly thought Sam's performance was kind of frightening when I first watched this. Like just the pure dark hatred in Jamie's eyes in this scene. Like he just has no mercy. He's going to have no regrets about doing this and enjoying it, honestly, is the look that's on his face. Yeah, I felt like Sam did a great job in showing that. Like, that is red Jamie. <laughs> and it's, it's frightening, but it's really good to watch at the same time. And it's a hell of a way to end the episode, if I'm being honest. Like, total amazeballs. That about wraps up my thoughts on 701, A Life Well Lost. The quote of the episode is the little exchange of lines when Claire says, Your life has value. And Tom says, I know that if it did not, this would not matter. I really liked that. I thought that it had such deep meaning and very reflective of Tom's journey over the course of this episode, but also last season as well. And then performance of the episode, Mark Lewis Jones, hands down, because not only is it his last meaty chunk for his character, but also he was so amazing in every scene. Like he really did see every facet of Tom Christie, I felt like in this episode, just come to life. And I really appreciated it as a viewer and as a book reader. From this point, I wanted to share your thoughts as always. So let's get into some listener comments. Casey Filson says, my three favorite scenes were when Jamie and Claire reunited. At the end, when Jamie took down Richard Brown, my goodness, to see more of that Jamie. And last, but certainly not least, Claire and Tom Christie talking before Claire's release. The sweetness and sincerity in Tom's eyes were very well done by Mark Lewis Jones. The scenes with the governor's wife gave me a chuckle. She was quite mortified, but the audience who knows Claire knew there was no concern. Yeah. She was pretty amazing, the lady that played the governor's wife. Allie Halpin says, Just loved it because it showed truth through the character's eyes. 
For those complaining about no sex in their reunion, this is what a normal reaction would most likely be. Claire and Jamie were 10 or more days in a wagon, having stones thrown at them, being separated and not knowing each other's fate. Your nervous system is on high functioning, not alert. All your stress hormones are fully loading out to the body. It's in survival mode. All Claire could do was just push through hopelessness, worry, fear, safety, and if they'd killed her husband. Then to be taken aboard a ship to tend a pregnant woman, the war is is happening and you know what's to come. She may be in that ship for who knows how long. She's in shock, trying to fight for what little rights she had. Then the Tom scene, truly a beautiful moment, but add the weight of Tom's sacrifice onto her shoulders. After Jamie gets her back, he's still not finished because confronting and taking out Brown was all on his mind and to-do list, but he can't do this task until he knows Claire is safe and asleep. By then, her nervous system is trying to regulate and her body can now rest to heal, and her mind can stop racing with all those thoughts and memories. Both love each other still deeply, and not having sex shows how they tend to what the other needs. Can we just, like, give a standing ovation to Allie right now? Because thank you. I have seen so many complaints about how in that final scene between Jamie and Claire when they're just laying in bed, I literally saw somebody say they were just two bumps on a log, no romance left. And I'm like, okay, what have these people been through in the last three weeks of their lives? Like, they are allowed to just lay in bed and take it all in. And it is okay not to have sex. They're both exhausted. Like Ali said, they're recognizing what the other needs in them. And right now, that's just to chill and be in each other's presence and lay in bed and look at the ceiling and think, oh my God. Because that's what they're both thinking and you can see it on their faces. Like they just don't even know where to go from here. They're glad they have each other back, but they're just physically and mentally drained. And yeah, Jamie probably still has a lot on his mind, obviously, with Richard Brown. I just can't, I can't abide the people that are saying that Jamie and Claire are bumps on a log in that scene. Like, what did we just watch? Like, it's okay if they don't have sex, okay? Like, it's okay. Doesn't mean that they don't have chemistry, and it doesn't mean that there's no fire left in their relationship. It just means they're fucking exhausted, and they're allowed to be. Amy Jo Patience Williams says, I enjoyed it very much. My only complaint was all of Ian's scenes seemed short and choppy. I wish they had spent a few more seconds on each scene to make it have more substance and transition it better. But overall, I loved it. Yeah, so that was one complaint that I did have initially when I watched it. I feel like the episode flows better on like subsequent rewatches, but it did feel a little choppy to me in quite a few sections, especially it seemed the scenes with Ian because they were just like, oh, we better ride to Wilmington. You're right. We'll be less conspicuous this way. And then it just cuts. And there were a couple of moments like that where I was like, wait a minute, I wasn't done with that. But then there were beautiful transitions. And most of the scenes with Mark Lewis Jones were this way, where they really took their time and let the actor breathe with it, which I also appreciated. Last comment of the day goes to Jess Turley Wittenmeyer. She says, absolutely fantastic episode. It gave me the same feelings I have when watching season one, back when show watchers fell in love with the show. Now as a book reader as well, I appreciate how well they condensed the book material to fit in the episode. Wonderful writing all around on this one, from light and humorous with Brie and Roger to deadly serious in the last scene with Jamie. 
Side note, loved the title scene after the beginning credits. It was something that I was looking out for all episode. At the end, we found out why Jamie is walking through Wilmington at night with such urgency. Wasn't it just genius? That's something that I don't think we've ever seen before, where they basically foreshadowed the ending of the episode and then dropped all of these little moments all through the episode to kind of just keep people on their toes. And then at the end, we're like, oh, that's what that was about. So I thought it was genius. I always love those little creative moments. And for me, it just fired on all cylinders. Alrighty, guys. Well, that wraps up my thoughts on this week's episode. Make sure to join me next week for my analysis on 702, the happiest place on earth. And until then, you guys stay safe out there and I will chat at you later. Bye.